suburban eastern Australia, an environment that has, over time, evolved some extraordinarily unique groups of Homo sapiens. Today, we observe a small tribe akin to a group of meerkats that gather together atop a small mound to watch, question, and discuss the current events of their city, their country, and their world at large. Let's listen keenly and observe this group fondly known as the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. This is episode 189 of the Iron Fist Velvet Glove podcast. I'm your host, Trevor the Iron Fist. With me, as always, Scott the Velvet Glove. G'day, Trevor. G'day, Paul. G'day, listeners. And also, as always, the 12th man, Paul. G'day, folks. How are you all? Hopefully, they're all good. So... Dear listener, if this is the first time you've tuned into our FAIR podcast, this is an Australian podcast, weekly, no less, award-winning, no less. <laughs> we won the Brisbane Podcasters Award for 2018. There you go. And uh, we talk about news, politics in Australia and around the world. We often talk about religion. We occasionally talk about sex, sometimes penises, less often vulvas. Uh, <laughs> no topic is off-limits. We criticise the left for obsessing over identity politics and ignoring the poor, for wanting offensive speech to be uh, restraining free speech, and uh, in my um, opinion for being duped by Stephen Pinker. We also criticise the right for conservative social values, neoliberalism, favouring the rich and for glorifying Stephen Pinker. And Jordan Peterson. So, uh, well, Jordan probably had it coming, but... Yeah. Uh, Stephen Fry put it well. He said, A Grand Canyon has opened up in our world. On one side is the new right, promoting a bizarre mixture of Christianity and libertarianism. And on the other, the illiberal liberals, obsessed with identity politics and complaining about things like cultural appropriation. These tiny factions war above while the rest of us watch aghast from the chasm below. That's pretty much what's happening in this podcast most weeks. Absolutely, it is. Mm. Um. Have you guys ever listened to the John Anderson podcast, Conversations? I did, yes. Right. And um, I haven't seen anything from him for a little while, but um, the last one that you pointed out to us was the uh, interview with Greg Sheridan, wasn't it? Yeah, there's yeah. been a few since then. Has that? Mm. Okay. He must have, built, he must have he dropped get, off his list. Yeah. He gets all sorts of people and, and uh, they talk about the wonders of um, the Judeo-Christian tradition. Oh, yeah, yeah, mm. they, that was par for the course. Mm. Anyway, I was listening to it and one of his guests um, came up with this fun fact. Well, it just mentioned it in passing and I ended up looking it up. Do you know why we have the terms left and right? Yes. Go ahead, talk for me. Uh, it started with the French Revolution and when they had the, you know, the, 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 the gathering of the representatives of the common people, and the representatives of the established, um, King? yeah, and mm-hmm. and you know, and the, and the clergy, the members, the people's representatives were on the left, and the king and the uh, aristocracy's representatives were on the right of the chamber that they gathered in. Yes, they started to divide in the chamber, um, as one deputy explained, we began to recognise each other. Those who were loyal to religion and the king took up positions to the right of the chair so as to avoid the shouts, oaths and indecencies that enjoyed free reign in the opposing camp. God. And the contemporary press 
used the terms left and right to refer to the opposing sides, and that's been carried over into other uh, areas beyond. Mm. I never knew that. I, I never knew that either. Yeah. yeah. I, I learnt that in political science at university. Yeah, that's the benefit of a look, tertiary education. Look, not only that, but I think this sort of information should be taught in high schools. You know, just basic, um, basic information about how a political system was formed, how it came into being. Because mm, I don't know how many times on this podcast I would re- we would have referred to the left, left and the right. right. Yeah, and we didn't know idea it came from. No that. idea of mm. the basics. So. It's worth one more quote here from Scottish, uh, Scottish sociologist Robert McIver who said in 1947, the right is always the party sector associated with the interests of the upper or dominant classes, the left the sector expressive of the lower economic or social classes and the centre that of the middle classes. Historically, these criterions seem acceptable. The conservative right has defended entrenched prerogatives, privileges and powers and the left has attacked them. The right has been more favourable to the aristocratic position, to the hierarchy of birth or of wealth. The left has fought for the equalisation of advantage or of opportunity for the claims of the less advantaged. So there we go, mm. left and right. So, um, Well, I, I was actually chatting to a, a, a friend and colleague this afternoon and I was telling her about the podcast and she hasn't yet gotten around to listening to it, but... Um, we were talking about left and right and how, you know, uh, we're, we're, we're probably criticised from both sides. And she said, yeah, you guys um, have broken out of the left-right paradigm. <laughs> and I thought, yes, exactly. That's yeah. us. We've either broken out or being, we're being crunched from the left and the right at the same time. Maybe. <laughs> so um, anyway, enough of that. We need to talk about – well, we're going to have to talk about um, – the Morrison government, and I figure if we're going to do that, we need a prayer to start with. So here we go. Please, let us pray. Iron Fist, who art in Brisbane? <laughs> Trevor, be thy name. With Velvet Glove and Twelfth Man, podcast, be thy game. Give us this day our weekly podcast to expose those who were trespassed against us. Lead us not into superstition, but deliver us from bullshit. For thine is the podcast, for the politics and the ethics, for the beer and the banter. Amen. 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 (laughs) I love it. Now, latest Ipsos poll came out, Scott. Yeah. And all of a sudden the numbers have turned in favour of the Morrison government. It used to be 54-46 in favour of Labor, and this latest poll that came out was 51-49, What's going on, Scott? Ah, look, I think that there's a sudden rush of blood to the head over that. Um, now, I was listening this afternoon on Radio National, I believe it was Patricia Carvellis, who was saying that, um, no, it wasn't actually, it was, um, what's your mate's name from? Um, My mate or yeah. Paul's mate? No, your mate. I don't have a mate. No, from the Surely. ABC, that bloke that's got the grey hair and he's, um, anyway, he's thing that goes on every night and they repeat it again in the afternoon. Anyway, he was talking to Laura Tingle. Ah, uh, Philip Adams. Philip Adams, yes. Yeah. I was listening to him. Is he your mate? I used to like Philip Adams, yeah. but not any, it's just got a bit boring for me. Mm. So a little bit too obscure, some of his topics. Yeah. Anyway. Yep. I was listening to him this afternoon around about 4 o'clock when I was driving home and he, she was talking to Laura Tingle and Laura Tingle thought that it was just a sudden rush of blood to the head that – 
everyone that she had spoken to on both the coalition side and the Labor Party side said they're not putting a lot of stock in the uh, in the poll. Mm. Now, Ipsos, this is probably the first poll since Channel 9 took them over. Who knows? So. <laughs> right. Might be doing it different. It's well, got a margin of error of 3%. So, it? yes. Yeah. So 51-49 could still be 54-46. Exactly. That error. Yeah. But it just sort of came after it, the sort of boat people scare that Morrison is – this. This is he the most is, despicable, ugly, awful really, Prime Minister we've had. I'd rather have Tony Abbott than this character. Oh, would you? Yeah. Mm, this no, this I don't guy. Know about that. I unfortunately subscribed to his Facebook page and he <laughs> he is forever doing um, impromptu sort of stuff to camera where he says, you know, hi guys, let me just tell you about this. Scomo here. Yeah, and and then he waxes lyrical about his latest piece of BS and he just thinks he can con us with this. You'll think we'll swallow it. It just infuriates me. He's certainly trying to make us swallow it. Mm. It's really infuriating. He doesn't realise that the mood of the public has shifted. Well, I hope it has. Well, it That's has why shipped. that Ipsos poll has me worried. Well, anyway. I don't think he's, I don't think you've okay. got anything to worry about. But right. um, I would have thought that um, on sober reflection, you'd have to say that you can't continually lose news polls and then suddenly have a turnaround. Mm. I would have thought that you've but, got to be looking at it and the, the news polls are continually them losing. So. Particularly given like the just – continual mess that's been created created in the litany of disasters that are just piling up. We had the Banking Royal Commission, which they voted against 26 times, saying it was a waste of time, came mm. out with all this stuff mm. proving it was no waste of time. We had... And, uh, then, and then they claimed credit yes. for actually... You know, having the, the Banking Royal Commission. They yes. said, well, you know, we, we brought this Banking Royal Commission to the Australian people and we've, <laughs> we've found all these, you know, these yeah, know. bad but people in the banking oh, system. They weren't. They, 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 didn't bring it, they didn't bring the public to it. They, they, it was brought to us oh. by George Christensen and Wacker Williams in the Senate. Yeah, you know, right. they were prepared to cross the floor. Wacker Williams? Wacker Who's Williams? Wacker Williams? Uh, John Wacker Williams. He's the, oh. um, his name is Wacker Williams. No, I, don't, I think oh, they call him Wacker Williams. Okay. But, it, just, um, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> he's from the National Party. <laughs> That's why it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, exactly. He's from the National Party. He's from New South There's Wales. There's a few whackers yeah. in the National mm-hmm. Party. Absolutely. Yeah, he's a bloke that lost his farm and all that sort of stuff to the banks. Okay. So, yeah. So he was forced into it. They were forced yeah. into it for sure. Yep. Yeah. But, you know, we've, what's really going to blow up in the next few days is this whole Paladin company thing. Where oh, God, yeah. That is a – that's really – that stinks. So, dear listener – yeah, <laughs> Peter Dutton's Home Affairs Office mm-hmm. um, basically appointed this Paladin to conduct security and and minor bits of maintenance on Manus Island, and ended up paying them four hundred and forty-two million dollars. Yep, at a rate of about twenty million a month, when the, a generous estimate would be that the services were worth about three million, yeah. and the people who are behind this company seem as dodgy as heck, and incredibly the company had its head office in a beach shack on Kangaroo Island. Of all places. Because you can't 
there's no post office and you can't serve legal documents on Kangaroo Island. That seemed to be the reason why. Like, well, this is the dodgiest company. It has since been relocated to Canberra. After the uproar. Yeah, after the uproar. I know that. And this, this is half a billion dollars I agree to this with you. It is and, criminal. And, and, and Peter Dutton says, oh, you know, that was up to the department. Oh, I had nothing to do with that contract. A half a billion Bullshit. dollar contract. <laughs> At what point does a minister get involved if... A half a billion dollar contract is not worth looking at. No, Dutton should have been involved in that for sure. But you know, Why? wouldn't you think that if they had to spend twenty million a month, they'd turn around and say to themselves, "Well, fuck, this is going to far too much. Let's spend five million a month. We'll employ everyone ourselves." You know, that would have been a lot cheaper. Yeah. Well, it's just uh, that's going to blow up in the next few days, and who absolutely, it's going to come from that. And that comes on top of the. Um you know, 400 and something million dollars they gave to some little... To the reef um, yes. about, you know, preserving the reef yeah. and they gave to that to some two-bit organisation. Oh, that was, was way beyond scandalous there. as well. So yeah. there's nearly a billion dollars that they've yeah. given away in very dubious circumstances. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, that will be interesting to see how all that pans out and it's going to be a busy week. Mm. Right. Um, but meanwhile, they've... Uh, in Queensland, there's going to be an inquiry into aged care, end of life and palliative care, basically assisted dying. So, dear listener, if you live in Queensland and you're thinking one day when you get old, you'd like the option of having an injection and putting an end to it all because it's getting pretty ugly, then now is the time to do something about it. So, there's a link, dear listener, in these show notes to, um, I think it's the Queensland Government website that's appropriate for it and you need to contact them and tell them what you want by the 15th of April so click on it and write an email and say hopefully that you're in favor of assisted dying and something along the lines of what the Victorians have done would be fine by you or whatever sorry Scott um we Hmm. do have someone coming on to talk about that do we yes great we do but he's away at the moment he'll be back Okay, yeah. so we'll potentially have an interview. But we've Which got to will. the 15th of April yes. and uh, make mental note, you must do something by then. Mm-hmm. Um, so He's, that This guy's going to talk us through what they what – he is from uh, Dying with Dignity, Queensland. Okay, yeah. so he's going to give us a pref- what their preferences are. Well, he's going, to, he's going to talk us through about what, what is expected and that sort of thing to go into these submissions. Right. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, hold off. We've got time. But, yes. but um, sharpen your pencils and exactly. get a clean start, piece of paper start ready. Start writing it out yeah. now, getting in all your ideas down and that yes. sort of stuff, then you can listen into the podcast. Yeah. Indeed. Other things that are happening, um, secular hospital chaplains in Victoria. So there's an initiative here from the Humanist Society of Victoria. Dear listener, do you live in Victoria, somewhere near Melbourne, hopefully? Are you non-religious with a desire to support others at difficult times? Are you comfortable talking to strangers and are you a good listener? So they're looking for volunteers to take on the role of being secular chaplains in the hospital system. What a great idea because currently it would be full, no doubt, of religious chaplains. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, again, there's a link and that would be a good initiative for people who've got time. Absolutely, that would be. Mm. Other things going on in Victoria – Daniel Andrews. Andrews has become my favourite politician. Yeah, well, even more so. He's cementing his place, isn't he, Scott? What's he, he is, done? yeah. He's now, 
He has now made it illegal in the state of Victoria to prescribe gay conversion therapy, which is really good. He described it as a ban on what he called bigoted quackery. Mm. So, you know, that is a really great step forward. Um, it's just basically saying that you cannot go and counsel, you can't pray the gay away, blah, 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 blah. You cannot do that. And, of course, the Australian Christian Lobby Managing Director Martin Isles has described laws against conversion therapy as a dangerous policy for parents, counsellors, and even medical practitioners with a faith identity. Why dangerous? Yeah, well, what does he mean by dangerous? Well, because you can't pray away the gay anymore. Well, well, this isn't. This, <laughs> is this that isn't a health mere, This isn't merely. <laughs> this isn't merely praying away the gay. I know. This, this, this is psychological is therapy, therapy and, or counselling to yeah. try to suppress or change a person's sexuality or gender identity, typically to minors. Mm. One would assume or mm. people who you've got some control over for some reason, where you force them into this therapy. And, yeah. And, uh, and we so, know how well that often works out. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there, there is that movie, uh, Latter Days, which is really very interesting. They've got a, um, they've got a fairly, um, what's the word I'm looking for? A fairly uh, grotesque picture of it all and that sort of stuff where they've got electrical electrodes and all that sort of stuff being attached to the male's penis. And Seriously? Yeah. In gay conversion therapy, yeah, to the they attach penis. electrodes to the penis. Well, that's what the that's what the argument was that they did that. That what they did was they then showed you homoerotic pictures, and then they dialed up the electricity depending on how erotic it was. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, do you listen? To, we do talk about penises. <laughs> <laughs> we can't get off. <laughs> now you've caused me to to divert to another little side topic, still on penises. Oh, good God! But right. you know, that is that is you know we're talking about the benefits of a of a tertiary education. Yes, and um, often in first year you will do some sort of elective. You know, you might be studying accountancy or economics or any sort of degree, but you'll have electives. And psychology is a classic sort of elective to take. It's just a psych 101. Mm. And back – now, this would have been in 1983 or so, uh, or 82. A uh, friend of mine and my brother called Philip was at University of Queensland and he took as an elective psychology 101. And rather than do the assignment, you could instead elect to be a subject in a, um experiment, in a psychology experiment for – you know, uh, third-year psych students because they're always needing people to study yes. and and this is a way of getting subjects to study. Getting an easy credit <laughs> by just being a guinea pig. Indeed. And anyway, <laughs> he ended up in a room with, with electrical sensor devices <laughs> attached, to, attached his to his penis <laughs> while he was showing pornography. Seriously? It's <laughs> set. And he, did he get a credit for that? I, I don't I don't know what he got from it, but that is dead <laughs> set what erection? he ended up doing. So you, you end up getting a pass for your uh, assignment, Mark, rather than having to do the assignment. This <laughs> is wouldn't happen today. I wouldn't imagine. But anyway, that's what uh, happened. It probably to, would happen today. That's yeah. what happened to Philip, and uh, he is a um, senior council barrister uh, these days. So he went on to great things. Let's hope. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just getting on to these sort of uh, – Therapies, you know, there are people out there with problems. So, I mean, here's a guy who had a problem. Thanks for seeing me, Doc. Um, I started listening to the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove, you know, 
just once a week to take the edge off. And now I can't stop. I'm downloading and listening to back copies almost every day. I need your help, please. <laughs> and, you know, Sounds serious. It does. <laughs> and I think I don't, modern medicine wasn't helping what problem. So he ended up uh, looking, well, not gay conversion therapy, but, you know, from, from an obscure source, this is, this is how he solved the problem. This podcast dependency is really killing me. But anyway, this is the place, the shill song, it'll cost you church. Uh, they say I can get help here. Let me have a look at their courses. Uh, pray the gay away. No, uh, happy clappy chlamydia cure. No, not this month. Uh, double dipping dummy donations. Oh, no. Uh, oh, here it is. Podcast participation persecution. Plagued by unresolved questions about supernatural. Critical thought keeping you awake at night. Just want to switch off and follow. That's the ticket. <laughs> There you go. Not all of these therapies are bad. Some of them that sound quite sounds good. quite, quite good, good, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From the shill song, it'll cost you church. Church, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Of course, uh, big on the news has been about illegal boat arrivals with, um, you know, uh, Karen Phelps um, you know, bringing about this new legislation where the people who are on Manus Island and Nauru, Nauru right. who are able now, if medical doctors say they need help, it's a bit easier for them to get to Australia. And Scott Morrison said, well, I'm just going to ignore that stupid vote on medical evacuations. Like, well, that <laughs> isn't he obliged to follow the law of the Commonwealth? One would have thought. Yes. Now, that begs the question, why the hell would he reopen Christmas Island? And I think that he has reopened Christmas Island because that's a way of bringing people to Australia for medical help, but then they don't actually end up on mainland Australia. They end up on a territory of Australia. Yep, that's it. And that is a really churlish thing that this bastard has done. Is it medical facilities on Christmas Island that they could use. Is that what you're saying? Well, apparently very the rudimentary. Very rudimentary medical yeah. services. Right. So we're going to end up flying people from the mainland over to Christmas Island to then do the assessments and all that sort of stuff of these people and that'll be it. Well, you know? they'll be crossing the continent. They'll be flying from Nauru or Manus to mainland Australia, then possibly flying all the way across the continent and out over the Indian Ocean to Christmas Island mm. to be assessed. I mean, yep. it, do, it doesn't make sense at all, does it? And, you know, it's, it doesn't, it's, you know, it's just honest, a political stunt, really. I honestly believe I, I agree with Trevor on this one. I think that we've got to take that whistleblower's um, argument who said that boat turnbacks have worked, that you've got to take the last of them off Manus Island and bring them over here. Yep. You know. I think we've got to close that all down. It's gone on too long and they just need to then step up patrols to make sure that nobody – it's a difficult thing to cross an ocean. And it is. And we should have, given the money we spend, enough um, security forces to mm. stop them coming by boat. But don't worry about people coming by boats because, dear listener, if you've been listening to this podcast long enough, you would know that, in fact, uh, lots of people just arrive by plane yeah. and then they um, – get gently lowered onto the tarmac and claim asylum. And there's way more people arriving by plane than ever arrive by boats. And it's all happening under the coalition watch. So if you are at a dinner party or a barbecue and some right-wing nutbag starts talking about how Labor is soft on borders, on borders 
and we need the Morrison government to save us, go to the show notes of this episode <laughs> and point them to the graph or the table that shows yeah. the number of people arriving by boat and the number by plane and just say, read that and shut up. <laughs> yeah. There we go. This is the whole point. I mean, I never understood why we had people arriving by boat. Wouldn't you think it would be better if they arrived by plane, if they came here on tourist visas and then they applied for well, well, the people who arrive by boat can't get here by plane because they're from countries where they just wouldn't get a visa in the first place. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. uh, so they're from the very poor countries, but sort of middle-ish countries, people are getting visas and then they're deciding, I'm going to stay, thank you very much. Yeah, they like mm. the look of the place. Yeah, and uh, in 2017, 2018, there was 27,931 of them. So quite a lot, yeah. I, a few weeks ago, mentioned Venezuela and I got the feeling I didn't get much sympathy from you, 12th man. Not you, very much. No. <laughs> Did you see the pictures of the um, containers on the bridge blocking support coming okay. from? What did you think of that? Well, it was a stunt apparently because um, Maduro was still bringing trucks across the border from Colombia, I think, or it might have been from Brazil, truckloads of um, basic you know, foodstuffs flour, sugar, stuff like that, and distributing it in little food aid packages to some of the poorer uh, people in, in uh, Venezuela. So, so that picture, did you see it, Scott, of I a did, bridge yeah. with the containers across? And, mm-hmm. and Did you know that that bridge has never been opened? <laughs> never, ever? Never been used. Why? Because of a dispute between Venezuela and the Colombians over certain mm. matters but not far off down the road is another bridge and stuff's going across all the time mm. yeah so that particular bridge never opened mm. it's a stunt so it's just an example of the propaganda mm. that gets run and the red cross and the united nations have told the us you know don't supply um, help independently give it to us and we will supply it but the us is insisting on supplying direct this foodstuffs. And they're using a guy, um, Abrahams, Abrams, who's notorious for doing this sort of thing in other Latin American countries where they used aid to smuggle in guns to arm the rebels to overthrow the government. So Venezuela would be crazy to allow the Americans to just drive truckloads of stuff in because who knows what would be in it. Oh, they could so, easily inspect it for guns. Well, Trevor. they could easily give it to the United Nations and they take yeah, it. I agree. It, it's a stunt by the a Americans. Po- a pox on both the houses, I say. It's a stunt by the Americans to withhold all of the money that's legitimately belongs to the Venezuelans and then offer them a trickle of some breadcrumbs mm. in response and say, oh, you know, we've got yeah. to do something about this government. So I'm, I just – it fascinates me that right – it used to be done surreptitiously to some degree. There used to be some secrecy about US government overthrows of Latin American countries, but now it's, it's just, just completely right obvious. Yeah, mm. yeah. And that is the whole point. I mean, I would love to see Maduro go, but I said to you right at the time that I would prefer it if the Venezuelan people got the vote and that sort of stuff mm. and they managed to remove him. Yeah, yeah. I don't like the way the Americans are pushing them. 
I do think that that's wrong. Yeah, I'm not in favour of the Americans, you know, uh, destabilising governments in Latin America. But, look, I, I, as you know, I, I work with a number of um, young people from Latin America. Mm. I did a straw poll uh, yesterday mm-hmm. on this right. very yeah. topic. Yes. Okay, so it was about... Uh, how many in the cl- in the group? Where About twelve to fifteen, mainly what? from Colombia, Peru, Brazil, uh, Paraguay. A pretty mm. good assortment of South Americans. Mm. So I put it to them. I said, "So what? What do you think about uh, the Americans trying to destabilize?" You know, and they mm. were like, uh, "You know, they weren't real happy about the Americans, but they said Maduro is just really, really a corrupt." crook you know he's stole the last election all of them were in no doubt that the, the election was rigged the last election and they all said you know venezuela is in bad bad condition and what? it's they can't say that about the last election they can't they, they can't with any certainty say that well so venezuela's got a history of conducting free and fair elections mm-hmm. the previous election that the carter group supervised mm-hmm. Was completely above board. It might have been. So, but, so but this is a country. One. But this is a country with a history of, of, of proper democratic uh, elections. It might and there's, have a history. There's not, well, what happened in the last election was that the opposition failed to show up. They said we we're boycotting this. So, was there any international supervision of the last election, as far as you know? No, the the Carter Group didn't supervise. But the point is, so nobody can say with certainty that it wasn't done fairly. Nobody can say, oh, there were ballot boxes at this place that were mishandled or misappropriated. There's not a skerrick of that sort of talk. Are you sure there was no suggestion no, of that? No, there's okay. not. And, you know, with all due respect to your friends from other Latin American countries, mm. you know, if I said to Republicans, what do you think of Trump? I'd say he's a great guy. Well, yeah. A, the kind of kids who can make it to Australia uh, for a language course. No, that's a bit of a generalisation. Are not a peasant class. Mm, they're not, the, but they're not. The, neither are they particularly rich. And I can compared to us, no. But they would certainly be in the middle to upper classes of the countries that they've come from. They'd be in let's, the middle. Let's face it. In order for them to make it to Australia to to undertake language studies, they have to be in the the upper middle class. I, I think upper is a bit of a stretch. So, because I know a lot of them work as uh, Uber Eats drivers, you so, know, to to make ends meet. Sure, but you know, it's if quite you were, possible. If you were rich, you wouldn't have to be riding a little scooter around or a bicycle delivering it's, Uber Eats. It's quite possible that these people are most likely to have come from yeah, look, an elite class. No, I, to to I, come I, to Australia to learn English. I don't There's no that. way they're from the peasant class. They're not from the peasant class. Absolutely, uh, no. So they're middle class at least. Middle class, but they're by no means wealthy. I mean, yeah. some of them are, and and, it, mm. and we pretty soon get to mm. know the ones who are pretty wealthy, and that's a small number mm. of them. The rest of them are pretty well, you yeah. know, in the middle. Anyway, we're going to have Hugh Harris on in a few weeks' time, mm-hmm. and he's he's of your view as well. So oh, I'll, I'll reopen the discussion okay. then with Hugh and yeah. if he's listening. Look, I, I you know can I ju- just say also that I think uh, you know liberal democratic governments around the world have been really uh, asleep at the wheel in terms of promoting liberal democracy. You know, I mean they've they've courted trade relations at the expense of promoting, you know, a, a, a better system of government. At the, so do you, at the group level, governments behave selfishly. 
do you think that just on that, you know, do you think that we shouldn't be trading with China because China's not a liberal democracy? Is I don't think saying? we should be, you know, terminating trade. But at the same time, you know, our politicians tend to bow and scrape every time they go and meet the Chinese and they're, you know, they, they always tell us, oh, yes, we did touch on human rights uh, issues, but they're never going to, uh, you know, criticise them to the degree that they... Well, they're never going to terminate trade relations, and why should they? You know, no, they're never going to terminate trade relations. But what they have done is they've told Huawei cannot be involved in our five G yeah. network. And I thought that was a pretty uh, positive step, to be honest. Absolutely. Yeah, I think they have to draw the line sometimes, mm-hmm. particularly when it comes to potentially national security issues. And there was an attack just the other day. When was it? Yesterday on in Parliament House. That Parliament was the House. Last week. Yeah. Um, well, on the political parties. Yeah. yeah. Mm. It's a worry. Mm. It is a worry. Now, we don't really, I mean, everyone's saying it's China. Well, everyone. They were hinting. They're it was hinting China. that it's China, but yeah. it could be Russia. It could, you know, they were, they were saying they were well, saying they said, those countries outside the five eyes that have got this sort of ability is China, Russia, India, Israel, Israel, and France. And France. <laughs> do you I think it's the French? The, I can't imagine the French would do it. <laughs> Can't imagine the Israelis doing it, so it's up to the left of the last two suspects. It could be Russia or China. Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? Exactly. That thought, though, about other countries not promoting um, good things in in other countries, keep that thought in mind. We'll come back to that. Okay. Right. Um, US dollar. You know, one of the advantages America has is it's the default world currency, and that means there's always demand for US dollars. So... You know, two countries might be selling oil and the contract will be specified in US dollars. And they might have nothing to do with the US. It might be Australia selling, I don't know, gas to somebody or or it might be Indonesia buying oil from uh, Saudi Arabia. But the contract will be in US dollars, therefore the purchaser has to find some US dollars and the vendor ends up owning US dollars and it creates a demand for it and... I've got a link to an article that says that uh, the Trump uh, government is the beginning of the end for the US dollar. And this sort of carrying on that's been going on with the Trump administration is causing other countries now to abandon the US dollar because it's a risk that they see. So Moscow has transferred $100 billion of its reserves into Chinese Yuan, 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 really? Japanese yen and euros. Uh, foreign correspondents since 2014 are no longer storing their gold reserves in the United States or, as with Germany, removing them from the Federal Reserve. Germany has repatriated its 300 tonnes of gold ingots. Uh, the Netherlands repatriated its 100 tonnes. So From the US? Yes. So some of the stuff that used to be stored in the US, well, when the US goes and just grabs the Venezuelan, you know, assets and mm. says it's ours now mm. until we've decided we like the government mm. other countries are looking and going hmm so um so yeah an interesting article and once the US dollar loses its preeminent position then it will be devalued things will get very expensive for the US to do and it will signal the end and uh, to give you an example of when that's happened previously, the pound sterling uh, in Britain was the reserve currency. 
until it lost its position of power. So the pound sterling share of currency reserves among international central banks fell from around 60% in the 1950s to less than 5% by the 1970s. So that's a pretty quick drop. It is, yeah. In uh, 20 years. So, and its value declined from more than $4 per pound at the end of World War II to near parity. So, um, and the British economy went into a tailspin and that mm. is, well, what could happen to the Americans? So, so that's an interesting one. It is really. None yeah. of us has a crystal ball. No, but. And no, none of us have got a crystal ball, but I think we can actually look at what the Americans are doing to themselves. Mm. And I do think we can draw some mm. conclusions from that. Yeah. And these countries are deciding we're no longer doing these contracts mm-hmm. in uh, US dollars. So there we go. Um, I'm subscribing to Crikey now and finding it really good. Really? It's a good source of stuff. A lot of our things come from Crikey. It's a little bit left wing these days, but it's not too bad. Mm. Mm. At least we know the origins of left wing now. Yeah, we do, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Helen Razor is one of the writers and she was just in a little fun piece, was having a go at PowerPoint presentations. You know, PowerPoint sort of has got a bad reputation. I tried to read that and there was a um, uh, paywall. Sorry about that. So um, she said that uh, PowerPoints may be a good fit for some communicators, but your reporter has yet to see evidence of this and continues to experience the thing as sensory bombardment. Talking about PowerPoint, she says, the thing deludes large numbers of people into the belief they have learned deeply and quickly while leaving them bitterly confused. Its appeal is best explained as Jordan Peterson. (laughs) Deludes large numbers of people into the belief they have learned deeply and quickly while leaving them bitterly confused. That's PowerPoint (laughs) and Jordan Peterson. Right, um, oh time to now talk. Now we know why you decided to quote that article. I know, I couldn't help it. Now, <laughs> um, well, yeah, we, uh, dear listener, often talk about race in this, in this podcast. We're not afraid to tackle it. And remember our new patron, Aiden? Yes. Who's a, who's a 12th man fanboy. Mm-hmm. Yay. Um, <laughs> he said, uh, Hi, fist glove and man. Greetings from a snowy Netherlands. Uh, I want to express appreciation of your podcast, providing me with a weekly update of happenings in Australia. Mm. Um, what tipped me over was uh, to patronage wasn't the 12th man's dry humour, <laughs> a big 12th man fanboy here. It wasn't the weekly beer reviews and it wasn't the fifth constant barrage of passant pistol-packed patron plugging. I don't plug patrons that much, but I will later in this episode, just for you, Adam. <laughs> it was well-researched topics coupled with to-the-point mannerisms and the use of Australian slang, etc., etc. He goes on, he said, I wouldn't mind hearing your opinions on Black Pete and Sinterklaas mm. discussion, which is going on in the Netherlands. So they've got a tradition in the Netherlands of Sinterklaas, which is our Santa Claus, as you would expect, but he's got a helper called Black Pete, mm. and Black Pete gets is essentially a black character who is kind of um, a folklore character who um, can be mean to kids mm. and can sort of dish out a bit of punishment or that sort of thing, like a little bit of he's, Santa's helper who does the dirty work for Santa. He's a bit yeah. of a negative character, isn't he? Yes. And he's stereotyped as a uh, an African, basically. Yes. So, so it's, it's, it's normal Dutch people in blackface. Yes. 
So normal white people putting on the blackface and uh, there is a um, uh, – let me just bring up this article actually. I've, I should have done this before. But um, so there will be – maybe there will oh, be a link to an article and the picture is quite interesting. So um, so there's a big discussion in the Netherlands about is this appropriate anymore? So on the one hand you've got the traditionalists and so you're saying, well, this is just Dutch tradition – don't read so much into it. And you've got other people who are saying, well, really, this is pretty ugly and in this day and age it's no longer appropriate. So bear with me and I'll just read a few of the different opposing arguments and then 12th man, I'll let you loose on this topic. Um, uh, Yeah, so Black Pete was um, uh, kind of, Santa Claus's muscle man, his enforcer. If children had behaved badly during the year, Pete would give them the switch, or worse, he would stuff them in a sack and take them away. Mm. So, <laughs> a little bit of a nasty connotation. The Dutch could a, have a downside in a, in to a, Christmas, a, couldn't they? In a folklorish sort of way, you would say, "You be careful, otherwise Black Pete will stack you in a, in a, stash you in a sack, sack and take, take you away." away. Instead yeah. of the, the the man with little horns and the and the forked tail. Yeah. Meanwhile, Santa Claus will give you a nice present if you're good. So, mm. yeah. So. Anti-racism activists see Black Pete as a prime example of how racism and traces of slavery are present in the ordinary traditions of Dutch culture today. In recent years, people of colour have started speaking out, detailing how often they've been compared to Black Pete, jokingly or otherwise, and how offensive that is. Meanwhile, self-proclaimed pro-Black Pete activists have said that getting rid of Black Pete or changing him would be tantamount to selling out Dutch national identity. So, just as Santa Claus is a landmark tradition in the Netherlands, so too now is the debate about Black Pete. It sounds a bit like our Australia Day one. Like, you know, every Australia Day the debate starts and it exactly. seems that in the Netherlands uh, every year it, the debate happens. Mm. Um, it says here from this Guardian article, it took us quite a while to realise there's something off about the character. Not until uh, a decade ago, when foreign media started writing about this, did it become apparent that Black Pete might not just be a funny folklore character? Goes on. The pro-Pete side rejects the notion that Pete embodies a slave. Instead, they see him as Santa Claus's friendly helper. <laughs> the anti-Pete side <laughs> points out that the relationship between white master and black servant is nothing but colonial. The pro-Pete side claims that Pete isn't black at all. His face is covered with soot only because he goes up and down chimneys. The anti-Pete side asks, in that case, why the racist caricature, the curly hair, the thick red lips and the big golden earrings. The pro-Pete side will say he's a tradition, get used to it. The anti-Pete side say Dutch society is no longer a homogenous white society, get used to that. Uh, one of the go-to arguments of the pro-Black Pete side is that quarrelling about it ends up spoiling the entire celebration for children. But if this were really about children, surely the Black Pete supporters would have paid more attention to a report published two years ago by the Children's Ombudsman, which states that many many children of colour find the Black Pete season very troubling. During those weeks, they're more often confronted with racial slurs usually by other children who call them Black Pete and poke fun at them. Twelfth man, this is a conundrum. It is a conundrum. And I, to be perfectly honest, 
I have pretty mixed feelings about it. I mean, mm. I, I do feel genuine sympathy for, for kids who are the butt of, um, you know, unpleasant jokes mm-hmm. at school. Mm-hmm. But, you know, do we, do we want a society that is totally, uh, what's the word, beige? You know, everything is the same colour, everybody is the same flavour, it's you know it's it's ringing every last vestige of and and I mean you know we're told we should value diversity and yet there's a bit of diversity and it's not seen in a good light. I don't think you can make that argument about it being a thing of diversity. It's I a negative. It's, it's a negative stereotype. I'll give you that. Absolutely, and, and definitely, it seems to be it's modelled on an African character. Well, you no, can see no from the picture it. here, the, the pictures of them, it's yeah, clearly it's, African. It's pretty obvious. Mm. Um, you know, it's really... But look, can I also say, you know, there have been furors in recent <clears throat> years and uh, even a few years ago, you might recall on that Saturday uh, program, uh, general entertainment program in Australia on Saturday TV. Hey, 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 hey it's Saturday. Saturday. Yeah. Do you remember they, there was a, an incident where there was an American singer Quite a well-known, popular Harry singer, Connick Jr. Yeah, mm. who who was on a panel to judge, judge the, and yeah. a bunch of guys came out dressed as the Jackson Five yes, in blackface. That's right. I forgot he, about that. He yes. was outraged. Yes, and I just think there's something funny about being outraged uh, when these people were clearly idolising the Jackson Five. You know, they were they were saying we love the Jackson Five and we want to perform and pretend to be the Jackson 5. And yet because they were white people, they're not allowed to do that. Yeah, but see, that's the cultural difference. You see, that's like uh, foreigners looking at the Netherlands and saying, what are you guys doing? This is pretty off. Mm. And the people in the Netherlands not really seeing it. Mm. So that's a cultural thing that Harry Connick Jr. had come from America, obviously, mm. and had, and which has had a very strong um, cultural um, view that it was a no-no to have, you know, to do blackface. So different cultural reactions, yeah. I think. So um, on one hand it was a homage to black entertainers. Yes. And on the other hand in the Netherlands it's a kind of disparaging stereotype. Yes. So what would you do about it though? Would you say, oh, we can't have that anymore, get rid of him? Well, I, one, one, or, or, or change the characterization to a more positive stereotype. No, I don't think you can. I don't think you can. I don't think you can change to a more positive stereotype. I think you've got to do away with it myself. Really? Yeah. Where 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 do you stop? What, where what, do you stop with uh, you know customs and folklore? Well, this is this is clearly got. You know, I, I do think that the you know th- this is from the Guardian and that sort of thing, and I do think that the Guardian sometimes is a little bit hysterical. However, a little this bit. Oca- yeah, just a little bit hysterical. Mm-hmm. But on this occasion, I think she hit the nail right on the head where they said that this has got connotations dating back to the slave trade. It, it appears to have. I'll I'll certainly grant you that. Yeah, yeah. No, I don't, and I don't think I don't think you should be trying to. Mm, keep anything left over from that time. I mean, that was an offensive time. We had owned human beings. You know, cultures are supposed <coughs> to evolve. Mm, not I agree. Meant yeah. to be fixed. Yeah. And the idea is that they can change over time. So you're, prob- you're probably one of those people who wants to get rid of the nat- nativity from Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> that care. wouldn't worry me. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, it doesn't worry. My, I, I yeah. have strong thoughts on the nativity. Yeah. I might have later, but um, yeah. But look, I, I sort of take the view. Look, okay, I can understand people wanting to value tradition, mm. but tradition uh, cultures evolve, and they're not fixed in stone. And sure. as we absorb other cultures, we take on the good and the bad. Or we'll, we hopefully take on good ideas from other cultures and discard the bad ones from our own. Yeah. And look, there is a bit of a compromise here. The Dutch public broadcaster has announced that Black Pete would look different this year with only soot on his face and no earrings. So he would be kind of like a white helper who's got a bit of soot from climbing up and down the chimneys. Um, he's, and I think that's a good idea. Like that still gives you the helper of Black Pete, but it's obviously a white person with a bit of soot on their, on their cheeks. What about the – did you see in the picture what – Saint Nicholas is it Saint Nicholas in the Netherlands? I, well, it's did you Santa see what Claus, he looked like? Santa Claus is it? Uh, just he he was dressed as the Pope. Did you notice it? that? No, I didn't see that. Have I another thought look. He was just a white. Have another look. He was yeah. definitely dressed with a Pope's hat. You know those pe- right. those sort of peaked caps that the Pope wears, right? And he had a big golden crook, just like the Pope carries. I didn't see that. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, what do you think about that? Should they abandon that one too? I thought well, he was just dressed up as a white Santa Claus. No, he it? wasn't. He wasn't. No, okay. he was definitely dressed up like a pope. Okay. <laughs> it's probably even scarier than black paint. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's equally as uh, sinister, I think. Mm. You know, this guy who claims mm. to have a direct connection with, you know, the Sky Fairy. Yeah. I've got real sympathy for the kids. Uh, you know. I black, do too. Black kids. I, I do too. They're going to cop it. Yeah. And that's unnecessary. It's, un- it's and, unpleasant. And you know, all the education in the world isn't. Kids don't poke fun at little Johnny, but kids will do it. So I think that's a good – for that reason alone, I think that's um, – yeah. No, I, uh, I yeah. think you're right. I think that the, the Dutch public broadcaster has got the right idea, yes, and, and then over time you just do away with him completely. Yeah. yeah. And maybe you could have like a black Santa Claus and a white Pete as a mix-up in amongst them. Like, who knows? <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> still on race issues, 12th man – Maybe you sent me this article on colorism. This is an interesting one. Very interesting. Very interesting, yeah. Bit of a read to give you the background on this, but um, something that I wasn't aware of beforehand, and this is an article by Matthew Blackwell, and colorism is the specific process where members of one ethnic group discriminate against those within their own ethnic group based on skin color. So... Um, I've heard of Beyonce. Who's Solange? Is that Beyonce's brother or sister or something? Couldn't tell you. Anyway. I think it's, yeah, one of one of the family members. I, I don't recall exactly. Yeah. They've got a father called Might Matthew. sister. They've got a father called Matthew Knowles, and he was asked in 2018, for some reason, why he preferred to date women of a lighter skin tone, and he replied that he'd been conditioned from childhood, meaning... Blame it on Culturally, he'd been conditioned to be attracted to lighter-skinned mm. Negro women, by yeah. the sounds of it. Yeah. Um, social scientists have recognised discriminatory behaviour among African-American males in favour of fairer-skinned females. And there's been a documentary called Dark Girls, which reveals it's still prevalent today. One of the quotes is, I don't really like dark-skinned women like... They look funny beside me, disclosed one male. I like a pretty light-skinned girl. 
So the Association of Black Psychologists has labelled colorism a form of internalised racism, the process whereby ethnic minorities absorb the racism of dominant ethnic groups to their own detriment. So, i.e. And that view has been enthusiastically embraced by a lot of our friends on the left. So black men are preferring lighter-skinned black women because the preference of the white majority has somehow by osmosis sort of percolated into them and they've adopted this bias mm-hmm. is kind of the theory. Mm. And So if they'd never been transported or found themselves immersed in a white society, they never would have preferred lighter-skinned females is the... Uh, that's the theory. The theory, yes. Just before we go on to that theory... This is a one-way street. It doesn't work in reverse. Black guys can be as black as they want to be and women are apparently not attracted either way to light or dark skin, but it just is, works towards fairer-skinned women. Interesting, so isn't it? That's interesting. And anyway, what this article said is that looking at various societies around the world of dark-skinned people, it happens everywhere. Apparently. And it's been documented by anthropologists for at least 100 years. Yes. In, in societies as diverse as uh, uh, the ancient Aztecs, ancient Egyptians, uh, South, what, um, Melanesian Chinese, Japanese, yep. And all sorts of societies never colonised by the West exactly. or with limited contact. Yes. And yet the, lightest coloured skin was a premium in many of those societies. Yes. And you may ask, well, why would that be? And the answer is um, that uh, these two researchers found that women tend to have the lightest tone of skin during early adulthood, during the most fertile period of the menstrual cycle and when they are not pregnant. In other words, when a woman is most likely to conceive, isn't that, you will have lighter skinned colour. Isn't that intriguing? So a man will have an inbuilt predisposition to be attracted to a lighter skinned woman mm. because he's most yeah. likely to procreate. Because it's, as they say in anthropology, a fertility marker. Yes. You know, like large round breasts and narrow waist and things and like that. broad hips, yes. Yeah. Childbearing hips or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. There appears, in short, to be a linkage, not only between pigmentation and sex, but between light pigmentation and fecundability in women. Mm. Fecundability. Mm. I had to look this one up. It's a good one. It's the probability of being pregnant in a single menstrual cycle. Mm. Mm. It's a good word. I like that word. So um, so basically the guys are attracted to women. They've got an op- opportunity to knock up then, have they? That they're yeah. likely to get pregnant. So it's a, uh, it's a yeah. selected for trait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically saying that accusing sort of white oppression as the reason for black men being conditioned to prefer lighter-skinned women is probably incorrect. It's without factual basis. Apparently. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, Going on with that, uh, in this article it says, I recall reading only a few years ago a satirical piece that pretended to argue that skin tanning is a form of cultural appropriation. Yeah. (laughs) Well, social justice activists have caught up with the satires by unironically embracing this very position. 
Indeed, Vrinda Jagota, associate editor of the New York-based magazine Paper, has suggested that white people should check their privilege before stepping out into the sun. And it quotes this woman as saying, It's that time of year again. The sun has finally re-emerged and people are spending their Saturday afternoons lounging on crumpled blankets drinking La Croix in Prospect Park. I've always been intrigued and slightly annoyed by white people's obsession with tanning. When they compare their skin tone to mine, it feels like appropriation, a co-option of brownness without ever having to deal with the oppression people of colour face for their skin colour. It goes on. Beggar's belief. It really does. You know, (laughs) I don't know about you guys, but when when I was a young lad... I actually envied people with brown skin. Mm-hmm. And I was a bit disappointed that I came out with this pasty white shit, you know. I wanted to be nice and golden brown like like our brothers and sisters who were born that way. How about you? Did you envy people with um, a nice skin tone? I've always had um, olive skin that's tanned well. And okay, so bastard. I've always been kind of lucky that way. Uh, I haven't. Mm. No, I'd burn. I go out in the yeah. sun too long, I'd burn. I don't really go brown. Yeah, so yeah, people would say, oh, you're lucky, you've got good skin. Yeah. So I have been lucky. Mm. Right. Um, one of the things that I, with that John Anderson podcast, which I tear my hair out listening to all the time. Yeah, I know that. <laughs> but basically they're, they can, they're continually bagging on about how We'd basically be savages without the Judeo-Christian tradition. And it's thanks to Christian morals that we're not raping and pillaging all day. And that's the Jordan Peterson line as well, all you Jordan Peterson lovers out there, is he says basically the same thing, that you may not believe in Christianity, but you've absorbed the Christian culture and that's why you're moral, um, because of that reason. And... um, I've been reading um, David Sloan Wilson, and he's the guy who came up with the Psycho Chicken story. Mm. And I'm in the middle of a book, which I will talk to you about when I finished, but he basically talks about group selection and how altruism, you would normally think when you're talking about evolution of a species that altruism wouldn't be bred as a, as a feature that would last long because surely selfish people would, would win out above altruistic people. But he paints a picture as to the fact that it's not just competition within, mm. between individuals, but there are competitions between groups yes. and that cooperative groups will outperform selfish, you know, uh, selfish groups. So groups full of altruistic or at, with a high proportion of altruistic people, mm. will outperform and outlast groups that are full of selfish people. That's not entirely an original idea, you know. I've heard that before. Yes. Uh, but he is the sort of guru godfather of this movement because that sort of idea was actually kind of poo-pooed. And, really? uh, yeah, so it's only in more recent times. So, anyway, I'll get into more detail about that at another time. But I came across this study, which I just had to mention, mm. where – They've actually looked, uh, these researchers, at 600 cultural records from 60 societies around the world. Um, 
And what they're saying is that there's actually more that uh, unites us than divides us in terms of moral values. And they said that basically everyone everywhere shares a common moral code. This is from an anthropologist, Oliver Scott Curry from the University of Oxford. And he says that all agree that cooperating, promoting the common good is the right thing to do. Now, these are societies that have had no Christian contact and they've somehow managed to discover the golden rule. Mm-hmm. Funnily enough, the golden rule was out and about well before Christianity came along. Yeah, like, absolutely. At was, least yeah. 500 years beforehand. So delving into the research, they sought to explore the theory that morality evolved in human cultures to promote cooperation. And they said that um, there's some common behaviours and rules that you'll basically find in, in all of these societies. And they are the following. Helping family, helping your group, reciprocating, being brave, deferring to superiors, dividing disputed resources and respecting prior possession. So that aside... That code means that conduct in opposition to cooperative behaviours is considered as morally bad. So the things that would be considered bad would be neglecting kin, betraying your group, free riding, i.e. not reciprocating, cowardice, disrespect, unfairness and theft. So we didn't need the Christian... And, and you know, does the Christian doctrine actually include all those things anyway like arguably no, no it's, it's, exactly. a, it's a mixed badge bag of nonsense mm. that extracting moral codes out of it is all a matter of interpretation mm. particularly when you're talking not about only that but it sacrifices the the good of the real living people in mm. the group and uh wastes valuable resources on some imaginary sky ferry. I mean, imagine, imagine uh, if the effort involved in religion had been applied to curing cancer. We'd, we'd have done it by now. Or just feeding people. Mm. Yeah. All the gold and riches of the Vatican. Imagine if they distributed that among the poor people of Venezuela. Yeah. They'd be all, you know, well off overnight, wouldn't yeah. they? So, dear listener, next time you're talking to a theist who's talking about the benefits mm. of Christianity and the Judeo-Christian tradition and how we'd all be savages without it, just... Uh, quickly Google episode 189 of the I'm Just Velvet Glove and head to the show notes and start quoting some of this stuff. Didn't you make a reference on the show notes, uh, not the show notes, the running sheet about um, religious people being happier than non-religious? Now, yes. I found, and, and you've probably heard this before, but it's a quote from George Bernard Shaw, the famous British playwright, mm-hmm. and he said, the fact that a believer is happier than a sceptic is no more to the point than the fact that a drunken man is happier than a sober one. (laughs) The the happiness of credulity is a cheap and dangerous quality of happiness and by no means a necessity of life. I like that. Yeah. Let me see. Okay. I'll jump to that one. Uh, Theus. Oh, actually, no, I'll go back because I want to – so we're talking about – We'll go back to the religious people being happy. Mm-hmm. But for the moment, let's just stick on cultures just independently all managing because through evolution we have become co- a cooperative species, a social species. That's what makes us different Absolutely. from 
from the apes. Yeah. Uh, well, even the apes are cooperative to some degree. Yes, but uh, nowhere near as cooperative as we are. And in fact, they like chimpanzees are extremely violent to each yes. other, and a lot of their intelligence is based on on hostility rather than on cooperation. Mm-hmm. So, um, in some ways, animals that have a herd instinct, like or a pack instinct, like dogs, for example, uh, display some more intelligence than chimpanzees because they have a a different style of intelligence where chimpanzees are, uh, there's a lot of hostility. They're killing each other a lot of the time. They're very tribal, chimpanzees, and they they usually um, gather around an alpha male, Mm. don't they? But anyway, so at an individual level, we have evolved to be cooperative and to respect the sort of things that I was talking about before, Uh, helping your family, helping your group, reciprocating, not being unfair, not taking something that, doesn't belong to you, etc. But uh, and and we, if we heard somebody being really selfish in some sense, or uncooperative or unsocial, we'd be quite turned off by them. Like we have natural things going on mm-hmm. in us to say, "Well, that's pretty ugly. I don't want anything to do with that person." Yet at a nas- at a national level, we that ugly selfish example nations do all the time so at a national level um uh, i'll just quote this bit here from david slane wilson around the world politicians talk unashamedly about pursuing the national interest as if it is their highest moral obligation um he goes on a smarter approach is to understand why moral indignation works at the scale of the village and why it doesn't work at the scale of the global village and how it can be made to work with the implementation of appropriate social controls. So at the national level, it's quite acceptable to say, piss off all you Indonesian boat people, yes. you're not coming here. No. Whereas if you're walking down... Queen Street Mall and saw a poor person needing help and said, piss off, I'm not helping you up. It'd be... It'd be looked at, yeah. Yeah. So at a national level, we often say we need to structure things so that we've got the advantage and we can screw other countries, Mm. you know, if we possibly can. We don't recognise that that's actually something that we would find quite abhorrent if Mm. that was done at an individual level. That's a really good point. Mm. Mm. So he said that moral indignation works at the scale of villages because it's backed up by an arsenal of self-control mechanism so spontaneous that we hardly know it's there. And people refrain from unethical acts because of consequences, essentially, that we all understand. But at a national level, those controls are much weaker. And what's happening is... He's saying that we need to encourage systems so that nations or companies or larger groups are called out when they behave badly so that they feel shame and don't do it. And apparently there's a non-profit organisation called B-Lab and it provides a certification service for corporations. Basically, they have to meet all this criteria as to whether they're good corporate citizens or not and they get a rating and if you want to deal with a corporation who's a good corporate citizen then you can see if they've got a b lab rating and choose to work with them and he's sort of saying well that's one way of 
trying to implement some sort of social control so that people are shamed if they're behaving badly at a at a higher level of companies or nations. Hmm. Hmm. Is it going to work? I mean, look at what happened in the United States after the last financial crisis. And the, the people who were held responsible for it were then rewarded with lots of money from the US Treasury, weren't they? Yeah, they were. Did they feel any shame? Don't think they did. Don't think they did. Mm. <laughs> you don't want to get me started on our response to the global financial crisis. We'll be here all night. <laughs> Here's another example of states behaving badly. Uh now, we've had this in the past with our um, Australians leaving to go to Syria or the battlefields in the Middle East mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then wanting to come back mm. and our government is saying, piss off. Sure, you're an Australian citizen, but we don't want you back. Mm. Like, that's an example of <laughs> poor behaviour. <laughs> <laughs> but, you see, if your neighbour did something like that, you'd be thinking, what an asshole! Because you made, this is your mess, you you own that mess and now you're just forcing it on somebody else. Mm. Were they born here or were they, were they immigrants? Yes. If they were born here, they're our problem, we've got to deal with them. So it's like one, one of your delinquent kids climbs the neighbour's fence yeah. and starts, you know, pissing in their pool. Yeah. Yeah, you've got to deal with they that. They complain with you and you say, sorry, it's not my problem anymore. Yeah, but that's what Australia's done with no. some of these... With those people that arrive here that take up citizenship afterwards, I do believe their citizenship should be conditional on good behaviour. If they're born here, we're stuck with them. They're our problem. Look, surely once they're granted citizenship, they're our problem. No, they're not. What, even even if, they, if, they've, if they came here as a baby and they've lived here for 30 years, they're our problem. Mm. Like they're a product of our society, like it or not. Mm, yeah, I suppose you got me there. You, you might also say yeah, if, you got if, me there. if we extend the protection of the law to people with permanent residency or even just people with uh, a valid visa to be in the country legally, then, you know, we, we're willing to punish them if they transgress. Uh, they're our problem while they're here, aren't they, to some degree? Can I give you a UK example that's going on at the moment? And we yeah, get to quote girl. We get to quote a bit of Ken and Malik, who we haven't oh, quoted good. for a while. Yeah. One of our favourites. Indeed. Ken Is and Malik. this about that girl that's turned yes. up in a Syrian refugee camp? How do you solve a problem like Shamima? Mm. In February 2015, 15-year-old East London schoolgirl Shamima Begum travelled to Syria with two friends to join Islamic State. Last week, she was discovered in a refugee Syrian refugee camp by a Times reporter, she's nine months pregnant and wants to return to Britain. And she's just given birth, apparently. Right. Mm. For some, Begum is a victim, a child brainwashed into jihad. For others, she is a villain who willingly joined ISIS and should be barred from the UK. The Home Secretary insists he will not hesitate to prevent her return if necessary. And according to Malik, he says... Both sides are wrong. Britain should let Begum return, not because she's a victim, but because she's a British citizen. Mm. We do not yet know of her actions in Syria, but whatever they may have been, she remains someone to whom Britain has legal and moral obligations. Refusing entry to Begum would not simply keep her out of Britain. It would force another state or organisation to take responsibility for her. And the camp she's in is run largely by the Kurdish and the Kurdish endured staggering losses in the battle against 
ISIS. So why should Britain now expect Them to the Kurds it, yeah. to have to take care of that? Indeed. So <laughs> this is an example where sovereign nations behave really badly morally, mm. which if it happened at the local individual level, we would say, you asshole. But we mm. seem to say it's okay at a national level. Mm. So they should take it back and then perhaps, you know, investigate her for potential criminal behaviour. done criminal behaviour, by all means, mm. lock her up. But you just can't say you're not coming back because she's part of the UK's problem. She is really. Mm. Was she born there or not? I believe so. I think so. so yeah. If yeah. she was born there, then yeah. she is the UK's problem. Yeah. Yeah. She was only 15 or 16 when she left to go yeah. and join ISIS. Yeah, I mean, like when you hear that and that sort of thing, you think to yourself, okay, she wasn't even 18, she was clearly misguided, blah, 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 blah. I can understand that. However, with some of those cases that we've talked about in Australia where there's adults who have gone abroad, taken up arms for both the Kurds and for ISIS, and if they can have their citizenship cancelled, I think it should be cancelled. Even if they've taken arms for the Kurds? Absolutely. Why? Because they have fought for a foreign power which is not a recognised government or anything else. What about those guys who go and join the French Foreign Legion? Yeah, I know. We've had this debate before (laughs) and I do not agree with you. (laughs) The French Foreign Legion is not – it's part of a military – it's a military exchange program. I had a classmate at university, an Australian guy, who was... Don't tell me he joined the French Foreign League. No, no, no. He was, he was going to go and join the British military and, and fight in, or maybe he already had, and fight in Northern Ireland. I mean, not right. fight, but right. serve in Northern Ireland. Right. During the, you know, the troubles, yeah. the so-called troubles. Right. So would you, what would you do? If they Throw had, him in jail when he came back? Got, if they had gone over there and they had joined a, if they had joined a, a government-controlled military organisation, then I think you've got to accept that. But if you go over there and you're going to fight, if you're going to take up arms for the IRA, no. I think they should be taken apart when they come back. <laughs> I want to move on from that topic. Because <laughs> you've to lost it. I don't want to get bogged down in that one. We've been there. Um, quick free market conundrum here. Um I've never been involved in online gambling sort of stuff, but... Oh, I've thought, bought lottery tickets online. Okay, there you go. Uh, footy season's coming up and, of course, you know, there'll be football matches on and during the breaks they'll be giving you the odds of sports bet or whatever happens to be and and encouraging you to lay your money on and how you'll get it back in these circumstances and, and all this stuff to encourage you to spend your money and then at the end they'll say... Remember, gamble responsibly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but um, apparently, in a little-known strategy to prevent paying out too much to the same winning punters, operators simply restrict how much they can bet or close them down altogether. So there are some guys out there who have worked out how to win. Yeah. And these guys uh, notice when they are and they make it extremely difficult for them to place bets so the websites don't work well for them or they get blocked out or um, disrupted or just, just plain what blocked. A, what a surprise. Eh? Yeah. So um, what do you think? Should a, should a gambling organisation be able to block winning punters? Of course not. Really? Why? Why should they be able to block winning punters? Well, I would have thought it's just a, just a 
you, you've often said before about businesses and that sort of stuff, they should be free to choose who they do business with. If yeah. you've got someone that's a winning punter, oh. you shouldn't want to do business with them. I have to eat my my humble pie now, do I? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... So yeah, you but, think but they're rigging the, the game, aren't they? They're rigging it so that those guys who who repeatedly lose their money are allowed to play as much Correct. as they want. So Absolutely. they're selecting their customer. But if they get in the habit of winning, they're blocked. Exactly. That's not an ethical business model, is it? There's nothing, should they, there's, be, there's should nothing, they be stopped? There's nothing, ethical, there's nothing ethical about business. Business is just in there to what do you maximise profits. There's nothing profits. ethical about business. Just, is business just, supposed to be ethical? No, you're just in there to maximise Exchange profits. of money for goods or services? You're just in there see, to maximise profits. I don't have a problem with it. See, they're being discriminated against, these mm-hmm. guys, but not because they are a member of a group. It is just because they they're worked good at, out the system. Yeah, they're good it's at gambling. It's like... Card counters at um, at, at, at casinos, at, at casinos. Mm. but mind you, casinos say you're not allowed to count cards if you are playing at this table. So they set a rule and say, "How do you count cards?" Uh, I mean, I know that they have a way of doing it, but do you essentially? Understand it? Yeah, um, basically, as the deck is played, um, high cards they will just say plus one. And low cards, they'll say minus one in their head. Mm. And then um, as the deck gets towards the end, you know, their count in their head might be, um, uh, you know, negative 15 or something. And they go, there's been a lot of low cards. That means there's a lot of tens in the, in the deck. deck. Yeah. So I can count on high cards coming and I will gamble mm. more than I would have Otherwise, but is there so, a way of detecting that people no, are counting? No, people cards? do it mentally, yeah. but they say, "Well, the way they detect it is that as the deck is being played in the early rounds, these people are not betting large amounts; oh. they're betting small amounts. And then as the deck gets towards the end, well, and then you know, there's five or six decks in the in the pile, but as it gets towards the end of that, before it gets reshuffled, suddenly their bets increase dramatically and. Isn't that's that when they their say their prerogative as players. That's when they're saying you're you're counting cards. See, wow. well, a little sideline here. I when I was backpacking in America as a nineteen year old, I met this guy who was an Aussie, and he was a a croupier on a card table thing. And in Las Vegas, and well, he wasn't in Las Vegas, but he'd done it elsewhere. And we were talking about this, and and as part of it, I said, "How do you tell when a guy is counting cards?" And he looked at me and he said, well, how do you tell when a girl's in love with you? And I just went, oh. And I thought to myself, I have no idea when a girl's in love with me. <laughs> <laughs> but I made out like I did. Anyway, that was his answer. But he, it was, it, there's a little bit of a, it's as much a dark art as it is science, perhaps, mm. detecting a card counter. But mm. there's the basics. If, if the deck's getting low and suddenly the bets are increasing dramatically in value and they're actually winning, you say, hmm, looks like a card counter here. Mm. So that's how that works. So anyway. But it I, seems unfair, doesn't it? It seems unethical. If you allowed the person yeah. to sit at the table and play, <laughs> yep. surely it's their prerogative how much they're going to bet and when they're going to yeah, raise all, yeah, all this has been taken out of yeah. this anyway because you've got these um, automatic shufflers and all that sort of stuff. They just put the cards in, they just shuffle through now. So you don't have this whole getting to the end of the deck and that sort of stuff and starting over again. That's all gone now. Is it? Yeah. All right. You've got these auto shufflers that just shuffle the cards. Okay. So you just... So yeah. they never really work through to the end of a deck, no. uh, of a stack Seriously? of decks. No, they no. don't. Yeah, they just go through. So why would anybody 
bother playing anymore. I don't, I don't know. know. Someone I look, does. Because they're hooked. Oh, I find um, casinos to be the most depressing places. I hate Absolutely. walking into Absolutely, yeah. And, um, I, I hate the pokies. You walk past these mindless drones that just sit there feeding money into the machines. But anyway, getting back to this uh, online gambling and these guys being able to refuse service, basically, to winning punters, I think there's such a blight on the world that we should pass a law to force them to take these guys just so that they, we've got less, maybe we've got less gambling operators then so they're not making so much money. So that's my view. But without that, they're free to do it. So there you go. Right. Uh, beer report, Scott. What have we got? Okay. Tonight um, from Adam, I believe. Yes, Adam. I met Adam, He uh, patron who, who made contact uh, I think he's a patron now. I'm not sure. But anyway, he's in Brisbane. And, we, you know, the nice thing is uh, I met him at his workplace and just to collect the beer and we had a good old chat. And the great thing is, like, he's obviously been listening to the podcast for a long time. And one of the great things is, and I noticed this when I was in Sydney meeting the patrons, that we could launch in a, into a discussion without any preamble because he's obviously been listening to all the shit we've been talking about. <laughs> And you can just go for it without saying, oh, are you aware of this or are you aware of that? Like, yes, you are aware. And what do you think of this? Because you're across it. Like, dear listener, like, you know, your fellow listeners are all up to speed. You guys should get together and talk because you don't have to wade through all the preamble. You know, Maybe we should establish um, Iron Fist Velvet Glove fan club uh, <laughs> meetup groups we in every sh- capital city. We should, yeah. Um, so, so anyway, it's got beer report from Adam. We- from Adam, we've had a Newstead Brewing Co. Uh, Brewers Half Dozen, which has been very good. We've mm. drunk three of them. Um, yep. I've had a pale ale. Uh, Trevor's had an Indian pale ale. And the 12th man has – hang on a second. I've just got to expose this. I've only a had half a can ale. and I can see yep. seven seven cans in that box. Well, yeah. so it was a – What kind was, of half a dozen is that? It was – Oh, he slipped in an extra one because of issues. But anyway, very nice. Thank you, Adam. Very and much appreciated. Also from David, we've had a Little Creatures Pale Ale. And, um, yeah, if uh, if my calculations are correct, we'll be without beer after next week. So, right. ladies and gentlemen, we do need yep. some more beer sponsors. I think, and I think uh, we Wayne, beseech yep. you. I think Wayno's going to come through with a six-pack <laughs> at some stage. So, um, but, but we'll see. So, so thank you uh, to our beer sponsors and thank you to the patrons who are, let's see here, dear listener, I mean, Aiden accused me of, of, of I guess, plugging, our, this. Yeah, plugging the, the patronage. I haven't for a while, but we haven't had a new sponsor in all, a new patron in a long time, dear listener. So What's, here's, what's here's wrong the, with plugging the patronage? Exactly. So here's the deal. Like if you've been listening to this podcast for like 20, 25 episodes and you're really at the point where each week you're kind of checking your podcast app, is it there, is it there, oh, great, it's there, and you listen to it straight away. If you're in that category and you are not a patron, then it's time to stump up because you are in the category that that should be. So. If occasionally you listen and occasionally you don't and you sort of pick and choose and you don't really care, well, okay, fair enough. We don't expect a lot. But if you're, if you're really into it, then we expect you to, um, after sampling 20 or 25 freebies, <laughs> to, to, to stump up the, the princely sum of a dollar an episode, uh, that's US, and um, through Patreon, and 
we would appreciate it and it will help pay for some things because we do have some expenses with all these subscriptions yes. and things. I so, noticed the new microphone yeah. socks this there we week. Go. So, Very nice. So thank you to the patrons, Sean, Janelle, Craig, John, Landon, Wayne, Oyama, Alison, Steve, Tony, Caitlin, Jimmy, Spud, Kane, Bronwyn, Matt J, Robert, Rod Palais, Maddock Man, Dominic, Liam, Dave, The Squeaky Wheel, Daniel, Harry, Gavin, Peter, Captain Doomsday and Aiden and non-patrons, uh, Dean, Ken was the beneficiary. The beer sponsors was Wayno, Landon, Hardbottom, Bronwyn, Dave and Adam and Landon. Another oh, generous donation. Very generous donation Thanks. from Landon. Thank you very Thank much, you, Landon. Landon, for yeah. that. You didn't have to, but it was much appreciated. The other thing, dear listener, is we haven't had an iTunes review for over two months. The last one to do <laughs> one was was the beer sponsor. Like that doesn't cost you anything except a little bit of time. Go to the the uh, podcast app for iTunes and find us and. Give us a five-star review about how wonderful we are. That would be nice. Um, got a little bit of feedback. Um, Craig wrote to us and said, I uh, really enjoyed your recent podcast. Keep up the good work. In relation to franking credits, when looking at them in isolation, you don't get to see the full picture. When you consider the superannuation payments became tax-free for individuals over 60 uh, in 2007... Uh, then franking credits was icing on the cake. So you have very wealthy people, older people, with potential millions in super drawdown phase paying no tax, then getting a tax refund because of franking credits. Good point, Craig. Like, it's true. When you've whacked your money into super, you draw it down, you don't pay. It's tax-free until you've got an obscene amount in there, Mm. and that's why you don't have an income you don't have any uh, income, an income tax to pay, so therefore you then get this refundable tax credits. Mm. And that, I think, was really wrong. And, and you know, he's also linked us to a um, uh, Saul Eslake, wasn't yes, it? Yes, yeah, Saul Eslake. And that's a really interesting article, ladies and gentlemen. I do recommend you read it. Yes. Um, but get down there on page eight. Taxation of superannuation payments, one of the worst taxation policy decisions in the past 20 years, and there's a fair bit of competition for this honour, in my opinion, was the one announced in the 2006 budget to exempt entirely from income tax superannuation benefits paid to people aged 60 and over. Saul Herslake has hit the nail right on the head. It really is wrong that you can draw your money out of super after the age of 60 and pay no tax on it. I'm counting yeah. on doing that. Well, <laughs> yeah, but are you going to complain when your franking credits are wasted? <laughs> I don't have any shares. There you so go. You no won't be complaining. Credits. Yeah. No, the, the, the whole point is it is ridiculous that you can go from working for 55 grand a year to then earning 60 grand a year out of super and pay nothing when you go into super, but you have to pay, I don't know, four or five grand or something like that on $50,000 a year. Mm. It is wrong. I honestly believe that income should be income should be income. It doesn't matter where you get it, how you earn it, you should pay tax on it. Who was the Prime Minister in charge when that decision was John Howard. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was at a um, – And that was the, in the middle of the mining boom when the cash was just flowing the, like the, a river. It was rivers of gold into the coffers. treasury, yes. And, that, and, it was, and what did they do with it? They wasted it. Wasted it on middle-class welfare. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Upper-class welfare as well, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, 
we really shouldn't have wasted yeah. it the way we did. The Netherlands whacked it all into a you know a future fund, and it's going Norway. Norway, Norway, Norway sorry, yeah. Yeah. sorry. Yeah. Um, I was at a twenty first birthday party on Sunday, and I was sort of um, you know, holding court with my views on things. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to convince some of these young people, yeah. what, what world, and uh, my tactic was: I felt I wasn't going to get anywhere with left and right sort of tactics, but I just said, "How long are you guys going to let the baby boomers screw you over? Ooh. Like, how long until you actually wake up and realise you're being shafted?" That's my new tactic with young people: is rather than a left and right sort of. He's trying to turn thing. the youngins against us. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I was basically saying you're being shafted by the baby boomers and you need to wake up to yourselves. There was a very interesting book I read many years ago. It was called Please Just F Off, It's Our Turn Now, Holding Baby Boomers yes. to Account. Yes. Yeah, and that was really very interesting. Yes. I personally thought the author had it wrong that they said, you know, the boomers just had to get out of the way. They had to go and retire and get out of the way. I thought that was ridiculous because you got this whole uh, tsunami of retirees coming that we're going to have to – we're going to have to keep – we need them to stay in the workforce longer because we've got to pe- keep them. How long do I have to keep working? Well, until you're 80, 85, thereabouts, then you can drop we've down. Got a lot of, <laughs> we've, got, we've got 12 submarines that you need to pay off. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do my best. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're starting to run out of uh, – well, we've got lots of topics, but um, – Mrs. Fist won't be happy if it keeps going. <laughs> um, gentlemen, are you happy if we kind of bring it to a close there? Or yeah. Yep. I'm good. Yep. So, right, dear listener, um, thank you for tuning in. If you, As I said, if you've been listening 20, 25 episodes, you're really into it, you're, you're on board, then now's the time to sign up as a, as a patron. It's easy to do. If you don't like Patreon, then just head over to PayPal. There's links on the website. There's magnificent show notes that I spend a lot of time preparing yes. that you can find things. And you know what? If you, are, if you are thinking about something that we said, there's a search bar on the website. And like tonight when I was explaining about left and right and you know that quote I gave of Stephen Fry at the beginning? Like I knew we'd said something about Stephen Fry, hopped on the website, in the search bar, typed in Stephen Fry, and bang, there it was, the little episode where it was. So all the stuff we talk about, if you can remember some of the key words, you'll actually find it. So uh, we're developing a nice little resource of information that you can, you know, look stuff up. So if you think that's valuable, if you think that's worthwhile, then uh, please become a patron. If you don't, then stop listening and go away. (laughs) Fuck off if that's the case. Like, really? Just piss off. I'm struggling. Uh, but, uh, we'll yeah. have to start paying, won't so, we, Paul? So, <laughs> what do you mean? Well, you're, no, you don't. You're already here. So. But, um, but, yeah, if you, you know, well, there you go. That's in my feelings on it. But, oh, we're coming up to, dear listener. Easter. Uh, we're coming up to 200 episodes at some stage. And I, I'm thinking it would be nice to do an episode where we maybe do our Normal bits and pieces, but then at the end we have like a bit of a call-in session where people call in and... Well, they can give us our number and we'll call them. Yeah, yeah or maybe via Skype somehow. Yeah. Um, so 
Let us know if you sit there and you think, now you'd have to be listening to the live version, which is normally on a Tuesday night, beginning at about 7.30, but thinking about doing a live broadcast that people could then um, listen to the discussion and maybe uh, join in and um, give you two cents worth. And, uh, and we'll still do the normal podcast and, re- mm. and record it, but for people listening live. And, you know, we'll be a little bit sexist here and say we'd like to hear some female voices. Yeah, indeed, because <laughs> there's too much penis talk here and we need to get other body parts in. But um, right, dear listener, so that's enough from us for the moment. Uh, until next week, uh, bye for now. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye now. See ya. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, first up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to, I think, $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners, and that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.